This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. In our second segment today, we're going to uh, finally have a guest on we've been seeking for quite some time. That would be Gerald Nachman. Mr. Nachman was the theater and film critic at the San Francisco Chronicle for 15 years and has written uh, now three books we'd like to talk about. We're only going to get to one today, and that will be right here on our stage tonight, Ed Sullivan's America. To anyone over the age of 45, the name Ed Sullivan is not one that needs much, uh, much explanation. But for a lot of you younger listeners, uh, well, I think you'll be especially surprised to learn how big this guy was. That will be fun and informative. Stay tuned for that in our second segment today. Let us begin the show as we like to do with On This Date in History, the date in question being the 21st of January. On this date in 1793, one day after being convicted of conspiracy with foreign powers and sentenced to death by the French National Convention, deposed King Louis XVI was executed by guillotine in Paris. Louis certainly had his shortcomings, but uh, we frankly doubt that there was much to this whole uh, conspiracy with foreign powers thing. Also kicking the bucket on this day in 1924 was V. Lenin, the architect of the Bolshevik Revolution and the first leader of the Soviet Union. Lenin died of a brain hemorrhage at the age of 54. His body was embalmed and placed in a mausoleum near the Kremlin, where he still lies in state today. The city of Petrograd was renamed Leningrad in his honor, which it remained up till the fall of the Soviet Union. Now it's back to being St. Petersburg, its original name. It was on January 21st in 1950, in one of the most spectacular trials in U.S. history, former State Department official Alger Hiss was convicted of perjury regarding his alleged involvement in a Soviet spy ring before and during World War II. Hiss served nearly four years in jail, but steadfastly protested his innocence. The best evidence suggests that Alger Hiss was, in fact, guilty. Also dying on this very same day... January 21st, 1950, was English author Eric Arthur Blair, better known to posterity as George Orwell. Orwell's works include 1984 and Animal Farm. Also dying on this day in 1959 was American director, producer, and screenwriter Cecil B. DeMille. DeMille's 70 films included Cleopatra, The Crusades, and The Ten Commandments. Also the 1952 Oscar winner, The Greatest Show on Earth widely considered to be the worst of the choices among all films that actually won the Oscar for Best Picture. Our quote of the day comes from Martin Luther King. And this we have Dr. Andy Jones to thank for sending this out. But it was Dr. King's birthday this past week. And he once said, Human progress is neither automatic nor inevitable. Every step toward the goal of justice requires sacrifice, suffering, and struggle the tireless exertions and passionate concern of dedicated individuals. Our quip of the day comes from Francis Bacon, another wise man, who once said, If a man will begin with certainties, he shall end up in doubts. But if he will be content to begin with doubts, he shall end in certainties. And in a variation of that quip, we have our joke of the day. 
from Wilson Misner, who said, I respect faith, but doubt is what gives you an education. Our statistic of the day is six minutes to midnight, as in the one-minute reset on the doomsday clock, which graces the front page of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, which appears to be the only professionals who measure the amount of time before man annihilates himself. They've been doing so since... 1947, when they uh, came up with this uh, symbolic device, it's been adjusted 19 times over the years. The closest to midnight was in 1953, after the testing of the hydrogen bombs. It was nudged up to two minutes away from Armageddon, 1158. The furthest it's gotten away was in 1991, when it slid to 1143, after the signing of the Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty. For the reckoning of the atomic scientists, we were five minutes to midnight, uh, prior to the adjustment, but some recent uh, efforts toward getting rid of the atomic threat have made things appear a little more optimistic. We hope this is a trend that continues. Let's see if we can't cut to the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to the Week magazine, it was a good week last week for building a better mousetrap and letting the world beat a path to your door. In the wake of a New Jersey inventor unveiling what he claims is the world's first sex robot. Inventor Doug Hines is marketing Roxy for $7,000. The robot is reputedly capable of speaking simple sentences and offers the user five distinct personalities, among them naive, and outgoing. Doug Hines was quoted as saying, sex only goes so far. Then you want to be able to talk to the person. You are invited, dear listener, to fill in your own wisecrack here. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for couch potatoes after a new study found that each additional hour spent plopped motionless in front of the TV every day increases the risk of dying by 11%. That's a study we're going to have to investigate later. And it was kind of an ugly week last week for doing your duty. when It was reported that an Ohio youth prison guard was fired and two others were disciplined after a teen offender's attempt to hang himself in a juvenile detention cell was ignored. Reportedly, the one guard who was fired saw the teen with a blanket around his neck and wrote, quote, attempting to hang self, unquote, on a log before walking away. A second guard who knew the teen was attempting to hurt himself also walked away from the unit, and a third guard acknowledged he too knew the teen might be preparing to commit suicide, but did not intervene. Reportedly, the detainee, aged 19, survived the November 1st hanging attempt at Indian River Juvenile Correction Facility in Massillon, Ohio. In his defense, the fired guard said that his firing was unjust because the teen had a history of manipulating staff by threatening suicide. All right, uh, we have four items from the not-exactly-good-news file department. I think I'll just read the first one from Yahoo News. By now, most of us have seen and heard about the profound devastation and suffering wrought upon Haiti last week after a massive earthquake. So you probably think there's no way that cruising tourists could be returned to frolicking on Haiti's beaches miles from where people are trapped beneath the rubble of a decimated city. Unfortunately, you'd be wrong. 
The London Guardian reported last week that Florida-based Royal Caribbean Cruise Line is docking ships at the, quote, picturesque wooded peninsula, unquote, known as Labadee, which it leases on Haiti's northern coast. At Labadee, passengers enjoy jet ski rides, parasailing, and rum cocktails delivered to their hammocks. British paper also reported that passengers can spend their time shopping for trinkets at a craft market, while armed guards stand at the entry to the complex to guarantee their safety. Despite the fact that the ships have delivered relief supplies to the islands, some passengers on these cruise ships are reportedly sickened over the decision to dock there. In its defense, the cruise line said, It isn't better to replace a visit to Labadee, or for that matter to stay on the ship while it's docked at Labadee, with a visit to another destination for a vacation. Why? Because being on the island and generating economic activity for the straw market vendors, the hair braiders, and our 230 employees helps with relief while being somewhere else does not. People enjoying themselves is what we do. People enjoying themselves in Labadee helps with relief. We support our guests who choose to help in this way, which is consistent with our nearly 30-year history in Haiti. And as callous as the story sounds at first, I have to admit, they do have a point. Here's two stories that make an interesting juxtaposition. The intelligence report from Parade Magazine last Sunday, titled, Who's on the FBI's Terrorist Watch List? Well, apparently 400,000 people, about 2% of which are U.S. citizens. The ACLU claims that the system allows too many people to come under scrutiny and diverts the attention of authorities from real threats. Gee, you think so in the wake of the underwear bomber? I mean, if they can't filter out guys like that, man, you wonder, you wonder about who else is on the list. And speaking of moves against terrorism, which might not make you feel all that much safer, we have the following, which I think I'll just read. News item from last Friday. A Spanish lawmaker was horrified to learn that the FBI used an online photograph of him to create an image showing what Osama bin Laden might look like today. The image, using Gaspar Yamarez's photo, appeared on a wanted poster updating the U.S. government's 1998 photo of the al-Qaeda leader. FBI spokesman Ken Hoffman acknowledged to the Spanish newspaper El Mundo that the agency used a picture of Yamazeres taken from Google Images. In a statement Saturday, the agency said only that it was aware of similarities between their age-progressed image and that of an existing photograph of a Spanish public official. The FBI said the photo of bin Laden would be removed from the website. Now, doesn't this item just raise a lot more questions than got answered? The U.S. government, in order to put out a photo of what bin Laden might look like today, takes a photo of another guy. Not only that, they apparently pull it off of Google. What do you suppose, they typed in bin Laden lookalikes? Now, you'd think they'd start with a picture of bin Laden and start using software to alter it. I mean, wouldn't you, wouldn't you think that's what they'd do? Well, I can see the same guys at the CIA a few years back. Well, we don't have any updated pictures of Yasser Arafat, but we'll start with Ringo. That's right, add the turban. Anyway, let's move on to this sad story. Writing in Parade, and you have to understand, I do have a weakness for Parade, I can't quite explain, but article by Dr. Ranit Mishori, noting that the world's first academic degree in medical clowning is now available to aspiring healers. The program at the University of Haifa in Israel offers courses in comedy, improvisation, 
mime, and juggling, as well as the psychology of pain therapy and communicating with patients. She goes on, research has confirmed the role of laughter in healing. That may be true, but I like to think of myself at least sometimes as a reasonably amusing fellow. And I do believe that having completed a medical residency, that if someone comes to your bedside juggling or acting as a mime, well, I just believe the patient should be free to use whatever defensive techniques he or she may deem necessary under the circumstances. But according to the author, a study in pediatric anesthesia reported that using medical clowns for children undergoing surgery can significantly alleviate preoperative anxiety. Well, all I can say is as a kid, I always thought clowns were kind of creepy. And I can't for the life of me imagine what these people are thinking to bring in clowns. But anyway, the article finishes up with clown doctors, as they're sometimes known, operate around the world. And that is one statement that as a medical professional, I can assure you is 100% true. I've known more than a few clown doctors in my time. This might be a good time to remind you that the opinions you hear on this program do not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the regents of the University of California, who, to the best of my knowledge, do not back the use of clown doctors in pediatric wards. And I have in my hand the perfect visual punctuation for this story. Unfortunately, this is not television. But if you caught that photograph in the Sacramento Bee last week of Princess Stephanie of Monaco lining up with three clowns, well, it would be a case of nuff said. The princess apparently showed up at the Monte Carlo International Circus Festival. The princess's lips are set grimly. All three of the clowns look as though they wish they were somewhere else right about then. <laughs> one is scowling, one looks stupefied, and one has a completely neutral expression on his face. As if he's trying hard not to give away what he's thinking right at the moment. And a final sad item, and to this we're indebted to the Union Jack newspaper, described as America's only national British newspaper. I ran into a copy at the Fox and Goose, and was immediately drawn to the following article in the Union Jack. Said the paper, The World Pie-Eating Championship in Wigan bans competitors from using gravy as a lubricant. But organizers say some competitors have been using cough medicine to help the pies slide down instead. They outlawed the substance for this year's event, held earlier this week, and warned that security would be carrying out spot drug tests. Apparently tests have shown that the cough mixture can knock two seconds off the time it takes to eat a championship pie. I don't know, folks, it's a pretty sad commentary on the modern world when pie-eating champs have to be drug-tested. Well, we need to address uh, the fact that it's uh, been one year since the inauguration of President Obama as America's 44th president. But to be honest, I don't feel up to the task today. This may require another week or two of thought to prepare some coherent remarks. We just simply want to acknowledge the fact that he's taken some steps in the area of... Uh, Reducing the nuclear threat, perhaps playing into that, uh, that doomsday clock story earlier in this segment. But I noticed in the Sacramento Bee a few days ago, they had a, uh, a blast from the past section where they looked at some Bee editorials from 20 years ago. Talking about the impending closure of Mather Air Force Base, the Bee said the defrosting of the Cold War 
could well mean a shrinkage of the workload and labor force at McClellan Air Force Base. No one can forecast with any precision the pace and scope of the defense changes that will come in the next decades, as the collapse of the Soviet bloc leads to a different U.S. military posture in Europe and a different global strategy. Sort of sad to think that 20 years ago we were all contemplating the peace dividend as the Cold War wound down. At that point in time, the Berlin Wall had just come down, and the Soviet Union looked to be staggering with not much time left. Indeed, it ceased to exist within three years, although I can't say that anybody saw that in 1989. But it appears that the military industry has not been downsized in the past 20 years. In fact, we're probably spending more than ever. In fact, I'm certain we're spending more than ever now with two hot wars going on. And of course, one of the greatest wastes of money that we've seen in the past couple decades was the... Ronald Reagan started Star Wars Initiative, the Strategic Defense Initiative, or SDI, which has squandered hundreds of billions of dollars and made us not one bit safer. Of course, the possibility that there could be a breakthrough and that missiles could be shot down has always made the Russians nervous and still does. In fact, uh, two weeks ago, Russian Prime Minister Vladimir Putin called for the development of new offensive weapon systems to preserve a strategic balance against the United States. The Russian leader, and he really is the leader, despite the fact that uh, Dmitry Medvedev is alleged to be leading Russia. Putin also demanded that Washington disclose more details of its planned missile defense deployments and technology. Putin warned that a powerful missile shield, which has long irritated a nervous Kremlin, could make the United States feel safe enough to become more aggressive in his dealings with the rest of the world. Of course, part of these so-called defense plans include putting weapons into space. And if you do put a space laser up orbiting the Earth with the capability of a, of, a, of a beam that could fry a missile or at least damage a missile being launched, what's inherently defensive about that? That's no more inherently defensive than handing a guy a machine gun and saying, here, you can use this to defend your home. And a year into the Obama administration, as we're talking about expanding the war in Afghanistan, well, it's hard to feel good about that. By the way, we've slammed Fareed Zachariah more than once in this program, but we, we certainly think he got it right in his September 28th Newsweek column when he said missile defense wasn't the answer. Said Zachariah, by canceling plans to station anti-ballistic missile systems in Poland and the Czech Republic, President Obama has traded fantasy for reality. Since the 1980s, the U.S. has spent well over $150 billion to develop such systems. That is more than the total cost of the Manhattan Project or the Apollo missions to the moon. Yet in 25 years, the program has not produced a workable weapons system, something unprecedented even in the annals of the Pentagon's bloated budgets. But anyway, about Afghanistan. We find ourselves again in agreement with Mr. Zachariah, who noted in an October 19th Newsweek column that more troops won't solve Afghanistan. While we think a war in Afghanistan always made a certain amount of sense, uh, saw some ominous comparisons made by John Meacham in Newsweek. In the issue that was discussing uh, the comparisons between what we're up to now and what happened in Vietnam, said Meacham, General McChrystal is implementing a strategy that draws on the lessons of Iraq and looks an awful lot like the pacification program adopted in Vietnam in 1968. Meacham noted that U.S. Special Operations Forces are using the intelligence gleaned from friendly civilians to find and kill Taliban leaders. 
That is precisely what the Phoenix program, which was targeted assassinations of Viet Cong leaders, was designed to do 40 years ago in Vietnam. McChrystal's focusing on recruiting and training Afghan army and police so they can take over the job of securing Afghanistan from the Taliban as soon as possible. Afghanization of the war is just the same as Vietnamization, the strategy adopted uh, back in the 60s. And you know, it's pretty apparent 40 years ago we didn't have a coherent strategy of what we're supposed to do in Vietnam, and I don't think we have one now in Afghanistan. This created a disaster four decades ago, and, uh, well, just one hopes we're not headed for one again now. And by the way, although the Senate voted uh, last month for $130 billion in defense appropriations for Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, it seems certain that they're going to have to add 30 to $40 billion more for the additional 30,000 troops Obama plans to send into Afghanistan this year. $30 billion is a lot of money to spend on something which you haven't really thought out very well. Now, I confess, I'm not a policymaker for the U.S. government, and perhaps I'm not privy to the strategy that's about to be employed. But on behalf of U.S. taxpayers everywhere, don't you think we're entitled to at least some kind of basic outline of what we're going to do? Anyway, let's talk of happier things. Let's take a short break and come back and speak with Gerald Nachman. Writing about Mr. Nachman's book, Ron Simon, curator of television and radio at the Paley Center for Media, called it a three-dimensional portrait of the man and the show that were part of our national consciousness for over two decades. Nachman's a natural storyteller and very good at explaining the full context of Sullivan's accomplishments. For veteran viewers, the book is a pleasant reminder of the years watching Sullivan on Sunday nights. For novices, it is a nuanced description of Ed Sullivan's America. Let's take a short break and talk about it. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. Radio Parallax. 